Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. Okay. I want you to listen to this. That is the sound of my keyboard. Regular keyboard. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is me typing a very basic program on my Commodore VIC-20. The very one that I had as a kid. Still in pretty good shape, a little yellowed, but pretty good machine. Move this over for a second. I wanted you to hear the difference between the sounds because when I hear that other sound it does put me in a good mood and gets me ready to talk about Commodore and I wanted to talk about a problem that maybe modern people don't have to go through as much. One that if you had a Commodore or a computer like it, even a 64, that you might have encountered. So I was kind of young when I got my VIC-20, and when I received it, I didn't get any of the accessories at first. It would be, I think, about seven months before I got the data set. So in the meantime, I had some carts, and I had some books and magazines. And in the books and magazines, they would have fully written out programs that you could type in yourself. This was one of my favorite activities. Usually I tried to do the shorter ones because... There was no saving it for me. I didn't have anything to externally save these programs to or write them to to reuse them at this point. So I would type them once, use them for as long as I could keep my machine on, and then once I turned it off, all that work was gone. On occasion, I would decide to try to write out some of the longer ones, and some of them were really long. And I remember this one instance where I was going to type a hangman program into my VIC-20. And I thought, wow, this will be cool. I'll play Hangman and I'll show everyone in my family, look, I made this Hangman, then I'll change the colors and everyone will be very impressed with me. The Commodore VIC-20 was on the one TV in our house, which was in the living room. And I would sit inches from the TV and type, see what was on the screen. And I pecked, I would peck on the thing. I didn't have any typing skills, still don't have great typing skills, but then they were pathetic. So I slowly but surely typed it in and then would go to run it. And of course, something was wrong. I had a typo. Read through, go back. Ah, there's the typo. Then I try to run it, still wrong. So typing it in, first of all, took me like four hours. Then trying to find the error took forever. I finally did. I got it to run. I was very excited. It was time to take a break. I went into the other room, got some orange high C, some oatmeal cookies was going to come in and invite my family and to show them how wonderful I had done. When I hear a noise, I hear the vacuum cleaner going. I panicked. I ran into the other room, and I could see the TV was on, but there was nothing Commodore-related on the screen. I freaked out and started waving my arms at my sister, who was vacuuming, and she stopped and said, don't worry, I didn't unplug the television to plug in the vacuum cleaner. She had unplugged the Commodore thinking that the TV was somehow holding the program, not thinking about the computer. 
I almost fell over with grief. It would be a month or two before I could get the energy up to try to do another program again. And I would show it off, and eventually I would get the ability to store programs that I wrote. And when I got my Commodore 64, everything changed. If you grew up in that time, you knew how exciting it was to program, but also how fleeting it was. And if you're a programmer at all, you know, always be saving, always be saving. And it has stuck with me my whole life, from the Commodore VIC-20 on to today. My Control-S is like a reflex, like breathing. Because of technology today, young programmers probably won't ever have to deal with writing programs that exist once and then disappear. But there's something kind of interesting about that, something ethereal about that type of programming. Now, I can't tell if it's nostalgia that clouds me or if there is something to that, something special about creating a program once and then letting it go and disappearing and having to work to get it back again. Now, I like having the hard drive. Yeah, definitely the hard drive. And I know that young me would definitely love a hard drive or a cassette or floppy, anything at that point. He would have loved it. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Commodore VIC-20, my first computer, and I was very happy to get it. We are going to talk about the company that made the VIC-20. We'll talk a little bit about the technology behind it. We'll talk about the development, the release, its popularity, some notable software that came out for the system, some accessories that work on the VIC-20, and of course, what you can do with your VIC-20 today. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Ten. Ten. Print. Retroist. Rules. Twenty. Go to ten. What would become Commodore Business Machines started out as the Commodore Portable Typewriter Company in 1954 in Toronto, Canada. It was founded by Jack Trammell. He had come to North America from Europe after World War II and had made a living in New York City driving a taxi and running a small business repairing typewriters. He then managed to get a deal with a Czechoslovakian company to manufacture their designs in Canada. So he moved to Toronto and started production. At this point, a lot of typewriters started coming over to America from Japan, and most typewriter companies had to figure out a new business, and Trammell was in that same boat and decided to make adding machines. So the typewriter company was transformed into Commodore business machines. Seven years later, it would go public on the New York Stock Exchange as Commodore International Limited. Then Commodore was forced to change again when Japan started manufacturing and producing adding machines. 
Tramiel went to Japan at this point to try to see what he could do to compete. And when he came back, he thought electronic calculators were the future. They were just coming into their own, and Commodore started to make a calculator line. And in the 70s, the Commodore calculator was one of the more popular brands. At this point, Texas Instruments had been making supplies for the calculator market and decided to make its own. And when TI decided to get involved in the calculator market, they took it over. We'll return after these messages. This Christmas, give the gift of learning and dreaming with the learning tools from Texas Instruments. Data Man, with exciting math games and activities to open young minds to the wonder of numbers. And for high school students, the TI-30 helps them understand how math can build the beginning of a dream. The TI-30 and Data Man. In the tradition of the little professor from Texas Instruments, innovators in personal electronics. Paperwork. Oh, those dollars go. Worse every year. Figuring percentages really gets me. It's the budgets. You know, I chew up more pencils. Markups, discounts, too much, too much. There's got to be an answer. Introducing the answer. A really small calculator. A really silent electronic. A really fast thinker. One that works anywhere on battery or plug-in. One with all the calculator know-how you'll probably ever need. Introducing the world's smallest electronic calculator from the maker of the world's most complete line, Sharp. Introducing the LC8, world's smallest electronic calculator by Sharp. Price tag to match, 345 complete. LC8, the answer. See it. And now, back to the show. Tramiel needed to find a new chip supplier, and he went to a company called MOS Technology and purchased them in order to assure that he would have a supply of chips for his calculators. He also picked up a chip designer named Chuck Peddle, who joined Commodore as head of engineering. Peddle believed that calculators were going nowhere and that the future was home computing. Pedal would go on to produce what would be the Commodore Personal Electronic Transactor, or PET. And if you went to school in the 70s, late 70s, mostly in the 80s, maybe even the 90s, you probably got to see a Commodore PET in your school. Because it sold so well in schools, the PET was sometimes referred to as the teacher's pet. Unfortunately, it didn't do well in the home setting. And that's because its sound and graphics capability weren't what people were looking for. So they needed something else. And as Apple II gained momentum in the visual world, Tramiel knew that as the 70s were drawing to a close, he needed to break into the same segment. At this point, there was this idea to create something called the Commodore TOI. TOI stands for the other intellect. And TOI might have been what would have been a color pet. 
It could have been so many different things, but most likely it was vaporware. It was something that Commodore was shooting for, and luckily in the meantime they actually came up with something else that worked even better. Since the TOI wasn't going to happen, they turned to a new engineer at the company, Robert Yans, who had worked at MOS Technology. He had designed a computer for his home, which he called the MicroPet. He took the computer, which would become the prototype for the VIC-20, and showed it to the people in charge at Commodore. Tremel loved the idea and ordered that it be mass-produced. The problem was that the prototype didn't have a lot of the features that you would want in a modern computer, certainly nothing that would compete with Apple. So Robert Russell, who worked at Commodore headquarters, was brought on to finish the design of the Commodore VIC-20 under the codename Vixen. At this point, lots of different things would be added by a host of people. They would create a new operating system based on the Commodore PETS operating system. They would geniusly add an Atari 2600 compatible joystick port. They would add a ROM cartridge port, serial IEE interface, which would allow for cheaper cabling to be used. All in all, this machine was really coming together. A fun fact about Robert Yans, who I mentioned, you might actually know him better as Bob Yans, and if you're a fan of Commodore computer music, he's the guy who created the SID chip for the Commodore 64, which would allow for such great music on the C64. Because of him, we would have great audio like this on the Commodore 64. was great about the Commodore ethos or business plan is that it went to everyone. They were trying to create a computer that could be widely distributed. And what better way to prove that point than to turn the project over to Commodore Japan to create a machine for the Japanese market. And in Japan, the Commodore VIC-20 came out as the VIC-1001, and it would go on to some success there. What really made the Commodore successful, though, might have been that they had an idea of what to do. And some of those were just very common sense things by looking at what people wanted from other computers versus what they were getting. And Michael Tomczyk, who worked as a marketing strategist for Commodore, came up with some really great ideas which would inform how the machine would be presented to people. He talked about the need for function keys that you could program, a full-size keyboard that worked similar to the way a typewriter was so people would be very comfortable with it. It was all about user-friendliness and getting the computer to lots of people for an affordable price, and that price point was set at $299.95. $299.95 turned out to be a perfect price point. And while the Commodore PET had been sold at only authorized dealers, the VIC-20 would be sold at retail stores and toy stores. 
and there it could compete directly with game consoles. As I mentioned, you had that Atari 2600 joystick port on the VIC-20, which was brilliant because a lot of people wanted to have a computer, but they also wanted to game, and Commodore jumped on that and hired William Shatner, who was captain of the Enterprise, as its spokesman, and in it he would say, why buy just a video game, implying the Atari is just a video game. A computer can do so much more. If you were familiar with Commodore from that time period, you probably know that there was a specific voice and personality associated with the commercials besides Shatner, and that was Henry Morgan, who was probably best known for his work as a panelist on the show I've Got a Secret. I can still hear his voice in my head, so let's get his voice in your head. We'll return after these messages. Here are the controls of an Atari video computer system. Here are the controls of the Commodore VIC-20 home computer. Now, which one do you think really deserves to be called a computer? If you say the VIC-20, well, here's a little additional piece of information. The VIC-20 also plays games like you've never seen before. Mere child's play for a true computer. The Commodore VIC-20, a real computer for the price of a toy. Why buy just a video game from Atari or Intellivision? Invest in the wonder computer of the 1980s for under $300. The Commodore VIC-20. Unlike games, it has a real computer keyboard. With the Commodore VIC-20... The whole family can learn computing at home. Plays great games, too. Under $300, the wonder computer of the 1980s, the Commodore VIC-20. Coming soon, Commodore brings you Gorf, the wonder arcade game, and Omega Race in home versions. Commodore. And now, back to the show. So when I was starting to read up on the Commodore VIC-20, it reminded me of all the speculation my friends and I would have about the name VIC-20. And what does it mean? Well, the VIC in VIC-20 stands for Video Interface Chip. And this was the chip designed by Commodore two years before the VIC-20 for video game machines. And they really didn't plan to use it in their own computer systems. But because no one else wanted it, the Commodore engineers decided to design the VIC-20 around it. Now, there was the 20 that really drove everyone nuts trying to figure out. And there's lots of rumors about exactly why it was called the 20. And things that I had heard is that the system memory almost adds up to 20, which why not call it the 21 since that's what the memory adds up to. And maybe because the system display has 22 characters per line of text, but then why not call it the VIC-22? The answer actually came straight from the mouth of Michael Tomczyk, who I've mentioned earlier, who was the manager of the VIC-20 project. He said, and I quote, Vic sounded like a truck driver, so I insisted on attaching a number. I picked 20, and when Jack Trammell asked me, why 20? I replied, because it's a friendly number, and this has to be a friendly computer. He agreed, the number 20 has no relation to any technical feature, just my idea of a friendly sounding number. That sounds bizarre looking back on it, but we did a lot of things by instinct in those days. And I think the whole Commodore project was basically by instinct, knowing what a consumer wanted at that point and going with your gut. And I think the 20 is perfect because of that. The VIC-20 was equipped with 5 kilobytes of RAM. Of this, only 3,583 bytes were available to the basic programmer. 
It used the same MOS6502 CPU as the Commodore PET. The video chip, which was the MOS Technology VIC, was a general-purpose color video chip that had been designed in 1977 for use in inexpensive display terminals and game consoles, but as I mentioned, Commodore could not find a home for it. And technical overview. As I mentioned, the VIC-20 only had 5 kilobytes of RAM, so it was underpowered and was criticized for being so. But the people who insisted on going on instinct while making this machine knew that what was left in RAM was roughly the equivalent to the words and spaces on one sheet of typing paper, which is probably exactly what everyone wanted. The VIC hit stores and everyone went nuts for it. It was the first computer to ever sell over 1 million units, beating Apple II by just a couple of months. At one point at its height, VIC-20 production was at 9,000 units a day, and sales crept over $305 million. While this was going on, the price of the VIC-20 kept dropping and eventually would become the first sub-$100 color computer on the market. The summer that Commodore VIC-20 peaked, Commodore unveiled the Commodore 64, which had 64K of RAM, hence the name, and considerably improved sounds and graphics. While the 64 didn't do great at first, it would slowly but surely pick up pace, and by 1983, demand soared. At this point, VIC-20 sales went through the floor. It would linger on, but by January of 1985, the Commodore VIC-20 would be discontinued. There were lots of great reasons to own a VIC-20. For me, there were five very good reasons, and to me, those were the Scott Adams Adventure International game series that were ported over to the VIC-20. They were released on 16-kilobyte cartridges, and these were just text adventures that I would love. I spent hours playing these games, just typing, 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 could not get enough of them. Didn't need any graphics for them. I think that it helped my typing skills at that point to have to do it. And by actually typing stuff, I kind of got more confident and would want to do those things like typing magazine computer programs into it. So it was sort of a gateway for me. But it didn't stop there with games. Other great games would come out. And on cartridge, 300 titles were made available for the system. And on tape, 500 plus more games. When you compare that to what Atari was putting out, there was sort of parody there. Uh, Toward the end of its life, Atari had about 900 titles. And, you know, a lot of those titles weren't that great. So when they said it was a gaming machine, and to me it was a gaming machine... They weren't kidding. They put out some amazing games. And I think if you see some of the more modern incarnations, and we'll talk a little bit about the homebrew community later, you'll see that people are really taking advantage of what the Commodore VIC-20 was capable of, and you can see some real arcade-style graphics. Now, it wasn't just games. Commodore had some other very amazing accessories that worked on the VIC-20. You had the VIC modem was the first modem to sell over a million units. It was priced right at under $100, and it came packaged with free telecomputing services from the Source, CompuServe, and Dow Jones. At the time, Commodore also created an online entity, it's funny to say online, called the Commodore Information Network, which enabled users to exchange information and to take some of the pressure off their customer service department. In 1982, CompuServe said that this network accounted for the largest traffic on their system. 
If you had a Commodore VIC-20, you really wanted to get your hands on a data set. It allowed you to run cassette programs and allowed you to save or program your own programs onto any blank cassette tape. Unfortunately, my data set is quite dead. It died a horrible grape juice related death. Later, you could use the disk drives that would work on other Commodore computers on your VIC-20, as well as light pens and printers that would be made for other computers would work on the VIC-20. The one thing that I always wanted but never did get was a voice box, which took the text on the screen and translated it into words. If you've seen war games, you've probably seen that technology in action. At the time, I desperately wanted that and never got it. It's one of those regrets. Before the Commodore 64 became the thing, they tried to create something called the Commodore 16, which is a handsome-looking machine that was meant to replace the VIC-20. It wasn't compatible with the VIC-20 or the 64 and really didn't go well. Now, we'll talk more about Commodore in other shows. We'll get on to other machines. Commodore would go on for a while, creating some really high-quality products after the Commodore 64, including the Commodore 128 and the much-vaunted Commodore Amiga. So, if you're a Commodore fan, you should know that the Commodore has a loyal following online, and programmers continue to write games, demos, and utilities for the system. If you are interested in getting involved and learning more about this modern VIC-20 community, you can check out sleepingelephant.com denial, D-E-N-I-A-L. There you'll find a forum with active people and passionate people. And you'll see some of the programs and games that continue to push the Commodore VIC-20. If you do not have access to a Commodore, don't worry. There are emulators on the web, including a software program called VICE, which stands for Versatile Commodore Emulation. And it is an emulator for Commodore's 8-bit computers, which will run on just about every operating system. It's free software. Just go to your favorite search engine and type in VICE and Commodore, and you'll be on your way to emulation heaven. The VIC-20 was a stepping stone, in some ways, to the Commodore 64, which is a wonderful piece of technology. But there's a special place in my heart for the VIC-20 that the 64 will never get to visit. Because although I spent a lot more time on my Commodore 64 because of all the high-quality games and the community of 64 users that were around me as I grew up, it was the VIC-20 that showed me this world that allowed me to see this digital terrain and allowed me to hunt and peck my way into it. And for that, I will always be grateful. And it's probably why I can't part with this wonderful computer that's at my side right now. If you have the opportunity, pick up a Commodore VIC-20 and take a look. There's lots of great books. I have some on my bookshelf, Mastering Your VIC-20. You can get that with your VIC-20 when you come in, and it'll show you how to master your VIC-20. And maybe you can find a working data set or even buy some of these modern cartridges that have just about everything in them. Retro computing is a great hobby, so get out there, meet some great people, and create some great things. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. For more retro fun, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear on today's show was provided by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com.
The Retroist forums are open again. If you'd like to discuss retro gaming, the Commodore VIC-20, or any other thing, you can find the forums at forum.retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. side here and brilliant this has been a retrospective production goodbye